You're listening to You Play A What, a podcast by a musician for musicians. My name is Vincent and I play the euphonium. Join me as I sit down with successful musicians to talk about their specialization, inspirations, and career developments. Hello everyone, thank you for tuning in to this episode of You Play A What. Is it Baroque? Or is it Baroque? I find myself repeating this word multiple times in this interview, but I can't seem to decide the pronunciation. And I don't think I spoke this word the same way twice in the entire interview. Why would I, someone that is probably as far away from the Baroque music imaginable, be talking about this topic? That is because my guest today is an expert in period performance. On this episode, I speak to Placida, who has recently returned back to Singapore from the Netherlands. We spoke about the usual things like how difficult it was to pack for the last trip home and of course the ever so important topic of vibrato in Baroque music. Please enjoy this episode of You Play A What with Placida. My guest today embodies the Asian spirit. She left Singapore to pursue her master's degree and she came back not only with a master's degree but with an additional bachelor's degree. I think the idea of taking on a single course of study is probably a little bit too easy for her. As she has recently returned to Singapore after completing her two degrees. Welcome to the show, Placida. How are you doing today? Hi, Vincent. I'm good. Uh, first of all, welcome back to Singapore. Thanks. And I believe you are now back for good. Yeah, that's the plan. Lovely. And uh, how is uh, adjusting to the jet lag? Everything okay so far? Uh, jet lag is good. Yeah? Yeah, because two weeks of quarantine, so there's a lot of time to sleep. Yeah, rest and just adjust yeah. the body. <laughs> good. So this is something that I'm uh, very curious about because obviously right now the situation is a little bit strange. And I think one of the worst things for students that are studying overseas when they are returning back to Singapore for good is the packing process. How was that for uh, you? <laughs> that was crazy. <laughs> because like I I was I knew that I would miss Netherlands so I pro- procrastinated my packing for like two weeks. Then on the last night I just did an overnight pack. I didn't sleep. Oh really? Yeah. So you you, you push everything to the night before? Kind of. Almost everything. <laughs> right. Did, did you have to courier anything back? Yeah, I had two boxes. No, no okay. So, was that the plan all the way? Or were like family going to visit and they were going to like help you bring some things back? Or what was the plan for you? Yeah, my family was, my whole family was supposed to come. So that's like at least four more luggages. Mm, yeah. And help me bring stuff back. Yeah, because that's yeah. usually the, the plan, right? So yeah. yeah, you come on a holiday as well as you save the courier fees. Yeah. And they get a holiday. Exactly, exactly. That's the, yeah. the most important thing. Nice. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I remembered my packing was quite interesting <laughs> as well. Yeah, I had like, I think, yeah, two large boxes of uh, oh. stuff. Then again, How heavy were they? Uh, pre- pretty, pretty bad, I think. That probably like 30, 40 kg. Wow. Yeah, okay. re- really big. Because a lot of it were, for me was appliances as well. Ah. Right, so I I didn't want to kind of give them away and sell them, so I bought them back. So they they were like my PS4 for one. Were, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There were slow cookers, there were pressure cookers, there were, there were like a bunch of stuff that I bought over there. So on hindsight, maybe I should have been a little bit more frugal and not spend so much money. But oh well. And now, how does it feel to think that you don't have to fly back to the Netherlands anymore? It feels good. Yeah. Like that I don't have to shift somewhere. Like so that I can stay put. I can think about setting down my roots here and not have to adjust again. Mm. That's the good part. Yeah. 
Yeah, it, it's always it, it can be a, a little bit kind of strange sometimes, isn't it? When you think that because you've basically you've been living in the Netherlands for the last what six years? Four years. Four years. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know when I first returned from the UK. Mm-hmm. Like you said, I kind of en- enjoyed it. Like oh, I don't have to fly back again. But then you yeah. kind of miss it at the same time. So yeah, it's Definitely. just yeah, it's just kind of this like inner struggle, right? Yeah. Yeah. But trying to look on the bright side, so. Mm. Yeah, that's good. So I think you're you're one of the students that mm-hmm. stayed abroad throughout the entire breakout of the pandemic, right? Mm-hmm. So back in the Netherlands, how were things like? Um, it was quite. Good actually, because uh, Netherlands was one of the freer countries. As in, like in Paris, you had to stay in your neighborhood, and in Belgium, or in Paris, you had like to stay within two hundred meters of your house, mm. and in Belgium, you had to stay in your neighborhood. But in Netherlands, you could basically go anywhere, as long as you weren't in a big group. Okay. And you kept your distance. Right. So this was yeah. since like March that the regulations has more or less been the same. And it ended like one month ago. Then everything eased up. Mm, okay, so right yeah. now, uh, before you left, everything was basically back to normal for them. Yeah. Nice. And performance-wise, were there a lot of projects that were affected for you? Yeah, there were. I was supposed to do a few passions, which there is the passion season is around Easter or just before Easter. Mm. And in Netherlands, they like to do a lot of uh, St. Matthew's Passions by Bach or St. John Passions, that kind of thing. Yeah. So that was, a lot of it was cancelled. Mm. Okay. So that sucked. I see. Right. And did it cross your mind at any point of time to come back to Singapore during this time or it was just kind of like, well, I'll just stay and then I'll just come back for good in a couple of months time. Yeah, definitely. Like there was some pressure to come back because um, at a, especially at the beginning, we didn't know how bad the corona would be. Mm-hmm. And then I was checking out flights and then Singapore Airlines says they're stopping their flights from, I think, end of, was it end of March? Mm onwards yeah. so there were some like panic moments when I was like oh no I have to come back yeah but in the end I decided not to because I had to I did a minor in um in a big instrument called the violone and I had uh, some classes that I needed to do and uh, at home it was a bit too squishy for me yeah fair enough and yeah. I think in a way then um, the airlines made the decision for you right so it's like come back during this time or come back in a few months time so I yeah, guess you exactly. made it a lot clearer rather than coming back in the middle, say between um, like March to June. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. So all great stuff. Uh, once again, welcome back to Singapore and I'm sure you, you will weave in or very seamlessly transit back into the Singapore music scene. I hope so. <laughs> cool. So uh, Placida, now uh, let's gradually ease ourselves into the main part of the interview. So uh, could you just tell us what do you play? I play a few instruments, but I mainly play the violin, both uh, modern and baroque violin. Of course, Placida is part of the Red Dot Baroque, a Singapore-based baroque ensemble. I remember attending the first concert, I think it was in 2018, at the Aspenet yeah. Recital Studio. Yeah, and I really enjoyed it. It was a little bit uh, different. I mean, I don't have a lot of experience attending uh, Baroque concerts. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first time I heard a Baroque ensemble was actually just a year before that in 2017 when I was studying in the UK. So there was an entire program of uh, Brandenburg concertos ah. Yeah, by the Orchestra of the Age of Enlightenment. Oh, super nice. Yeah, that was really interesting because obviously... I've heard period performances on streaming platforms before, but to see it live, it's really interesting because the leader of the group was just kind of like jumping around the stage, right? He had so much energy. I, I don't know where it, where it came from throughout the entire performance. Yeah. Yeah. But what, what, I, what was interesting in the concert was it was in a really, really big hall. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was at the, the Bridgewater Hall in Manchester, which seats about 2.3k audience. Oh. So it's really, really big. So I felt that, um, is it the nature of the instrument or that the, the performance were just a little bit distant and a little bit quiet? 
Yeah, we are more. I think bar instruments are uh, better heard in a smaller area. And have you done a lot of baroque performances in like huge modern concert halls? Yes and no. They're not so big, but I have done like in my school concert hall, which is quite big, and we actually had to. I decided for my third year recital, it was in the big concert hall. I decided to move the audience up onto the stage with me. Ah, okay, nice. Yeah, so that it's more intimate. Hmm. Uh, definitely, it's more intimate. But I think for a baroque setting, then it really kind of adds on to this idea of the chamber music. Yeah. Where everyone is kind of in the same space. Yeah. So, the next couple of months for you, do you have any upcoming uh, projects or things to do? There were a few projects planned, but they were kind of changed because of the COVID situation. So the mo- closest one would be with Red Dot Baroque. We are recording a few Bach sonatas mm. that will be probably online in early August. Nice. Yeah. Okay. And then after that, we have some new music with Red Dot Baroque. New music? By, yeah. Is, I think Kok Fan Jun would uh, compose something based on dances in the Southeast Asian style. In a way. Nice, nice. So this is going to be basically a, a period ensemble playing modern music. Yeah. So that, that should be really interesting. Yeah, looking forward. We are all looking forward to it. Now, I don't know how true this is. This is just something that I heard during one of those Facebook sharing sessions, right? <laughs> that is, humidity affects the tuning and the maintenance of Baroque instrument. Yeah. Let's take Singapore, for example. If you were to play uh, somewhere that is, for example, not air-conditioned, what is likely going to happen? If the strings will go out of tune every few minutes. <laughs> like, because I use gut strings, mm-hmm. which is uh, made of the gut or sheep or cows. Mm. And then, so it's a natural, um, it's not a synthetic uh, material, and so it absorbs the moisture from the air. especially And also the wood of the instrument will change. Okay, so what is your <laughs> strategy now that you've moved back here for in terms of like instrument maintenance and, and stuff like that? For example, I think when I move back from Netherlands, I need at least a week for it to be happy again because of the changes. Oh, really? And sound good, yeah. Okay, so the, the instrument will also kind of climatize to the, yeah, to the environment. Yeah, it needs time. Okay, yeah. okay. And other than that, um, I'm also using, this is not very historical, but I'm using a fishing line E-string, which is more suitable, like it can sustain the the tuning and not break too easily. Ah, okay. So, okay, so three of them are gut string and one of them is a fishing string. Fishing line. Fishing line, yeah, fishing string. (laughs) 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 Okay, yeah. So... Um, can, can you just share like the kind of general differences between a modern and pure instrument? Of course, you already spoke about the different materials of the strings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what other sort of differences are there? Definitely the bow is completely different. Like uh, on a modern violin, the bow is, uh, the ideal of the bow is to sustain a complete bow stroke at the same volume and the same color throughout the bow. But in the barrack bow, it is of a different shape. Mm. It's the, I think what you call a convex shape, whereas the modern is a concave shape. Mm. Okay. The wood of the bow. And so the baroque bow, which is a convex shape, will have more swellings. We, mm. we like to call that mezza di voce, like wow. Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah. so that kind of very uh, organic growth of the yeah. sound, which, which is probably something that like modern trained instrumentalists try to avoid, right? In a way. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, okay, sure. I mean, we, uh, for sure, we'll get into the, uh, the technical details of how you adapted between these two instruments a little bit later, mm-hmm. but that should be mm-hmm. uh, pretty interesting. And I think that should be very good information, not only for violinists that's um, interested in picking up period performances or period mm-hmm. instrument, but also for wind instrumentalists <laughs> that is performing Baroque music. Yeah. Cool. So let's move on to now when we first met. (laughs) Okay. So obviously our meeting are extremely sparse. I think Mm -hmm. I've 
hung out with you less than five times? I think so. From my recollections, okay? Mm -hmm. So the first time I met you or I saw you, yeah. we had zero interaction. Ah. That was the night that you flew off to start your studies in Netherlands. Ah. So I, I was there to send a friend off who happened to okay. be on the same flight as you. Okay. Yeah. And I think you know him quite well as well. Right. Yeah. Ah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, who was like... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. So at that yeah. point of time, I knew Don for, for a good number of years. Yeah. At that point of time, I was back for my summer vacation. Mm -hmm. So I was going to return back to do my third year of studies in the UK. But, uh, okay. but you guys were heading to, uh, to the Netherlands a little bit sooner than me. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, like I said, I've known him for many years. So after he started his studies at uh, Yongshuto, mm -hmm. so I've heard that he got attached. <laughs> I, th I heard that, you know, Don's got a girlfriend now. So I was like, okay, but I've never seen the girlfriend before. Mm -hmm. And then what he has always told me was that, Bro, it's okay. If you want to know, I'm obviously the better looking one. <laughs> no, no, no. Actually, he didn't say that. Like, this is just something I made up. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. And I think that, that was the first time I saw you in person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, uh, proof that it is true. I mean, I knew that it was true like, because it didn't just come from him. It came from a lot of other people as well. Yeah. So, um, and I think the first sort of real interaction we had was in 2016 when you performed with the Orchestra Collective. Mm, yeah. Yeah, that was when I think we started speaking a little bit more. And of course, yeah. during that point of time, whenever Dawn was back for the summer, uh, mm -hmm. we would always practice at uh, YST. Yeah, yeah. Then Back then, when, when the school was pretty empty. And then I think we spoke and said hi a few times then. Yeah, yeah. but my recollection was back when you first flew off to the Netherlands. Wow, yeah. I completely forgot that. <laughs> I, I don't think you saw me as well. I, yeah, so yeah, there was a, a little bit of distance anyway. Yeah, so first interaction in 2016 when you came and played, uh, that was the Queen Symphony conducted by Daniel. Yeah. Yeah, when you did the violin solo. And then the next um, sort of interaction we had was when I visited the Netherlands. So this was mm -hmm. the same trip when I played for Daniel's final recital for mm. his conducting exam. And then I visited The Hague for mm. a day. Yeah. Yeah, ended up buying a trench coat over there, I think. Nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, we had a famous ice cream there. What was it called yeah. again? What's the shop? Luciano. Luciano, yes. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah. And I think that's it. And then now, since then, there has been almost kind of no interaction until today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think... Yeah, hopefully we'll be speaking and seeing each other a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure we will. Definitely. Yeah. Cool. Uh, any anything to disagree with me for, uh, from what I've said? Mm, no, I actually couldn't remember a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I think my earliest mem memory of you was in YST. Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah. cool. So yeah, I just hope that um, I didn't get Don into trouble. I think that's the... And that's the <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the most important thing. Um, I mean, if he, he gets into trouble with you, also, it's okay. But <laughs> yeah, it's, it's going down to Can I call him and like, ah! Yeah. <laughs> uh, good. So now, um, let's uh, talk us through your musical journey and your career development so far. Um, I started playing violin fairly early, and so I can't remember a time when I didn't play the violin. Mm. And... Then I joined YST in 2012, I think. Okay. And graduated 2016. And in my last year of study, my Baroque violin teacher, Ryo Terakado, came to give a project. And I was super interested in his way of playing. So I went to The Hague mm. and started a master in music education and also a bachelor in Baroque violin. Mm, okay. Yeah. And now I'm back in Singapore. Nice. And now, okay, let's trace it back to when you started. So how old were you when you first started playing the violin? I was three years old. 
You're three years old. Yeah. Okay. Because my parents put me under the Suzuki method. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And throughout your time, then between learning the violin to uh, entering YST, were you yeah. playing in any sort of uh, large ensembles during this time? I was in the most of all my school string ensembles, mm. like in MGS string ensemble, in VJC string ensemble. Okay. Yeah. And was like the youth orchestra something that you considered or, or not really? Yeah, I tried to audition for it when I was 11, but I got rejected and then I didn't try again. <laughs> did, did experience scar you? <laughs> <laughs> a bit. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And how, how important do you think it is to be part of a string ensemble? And how much of that has helped you in your musical development? I think I missed out a lot that I didn't join the youth orchestra because I feel like it is very important to play with other musicians who will help in chamber music that will definitely help the solo violin playing mm. because things like sight reading is much harder to train alone and li listening to each other and rhythm is the basics. Yeah. It's harder to train. Mm. And is it fair to say that your first sort of orchestral experience was when you after you entered YST? Uh, in the VJC string ensemble, we had also we invited wind players ah. to come and play with us. So there was a bit of orchestra playing, but not so much. Okay, so instrumentalists from the band would join and then form an orchestra together. Sometimes, so. and actually, that was when I at first met Don. Actually, kind not really. We didn't really talk. Ah, okay. Because he was invited to join. Ah, I see. I see. Yeah. Okay. Nice. So between three years old to, say, when you entered YST, what kept you so kind of motivated and interested in music that you decided to study music? Actually, I didn't, wasn't super motivated to study music um, from at least three years old to 11 years old. Mm. Then after that, I felt like I suddenly understood or... I suddenly felt music better okay. from around 11 and then I really liked to play the violin. Then after that, I was practicing by myself. But before I was 18 years old, I didn't think I would become a violinist because my parents were against it. Mm. Okay. So I was always trying to be something else. Right. So yeah. trying to be something else in terms of like trying to not become a violinist and yeah. do something else. Okay. Yeah. Right. And so how, how do you fight through this um, early stages of learning the instrument? Because I, I suppose it is extremely difficult, especially at a young age, to kind of stay focused and practice and all that kind of stuff. So. Yeah. My mom helped a lot. <laughs> <laughs> helped. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So um, a little bit of motivation. Yeah. Right. Okay. <laughs> Good and bad motivation. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. And now, so how did you then come across YST and any, did some of your teachers tell you about it or, or were you doing like MEP and things like that when you were studying? Yeah, I did two years of MEP, but I had to stop because I, I changed school to VJC around SEC3. Ah, okay. Yeah, to... To join an IP program, but they didn't have the MEP program there for Sec three students. I see. Okay. Yeah. So. But I found mm. out about YST through my teachers, my then violin teachers, because they told me about the it was either NAFA or YST, mm. and I chose YST because it's a university and there's a scholarship. Yeah, fair enough. Did you know what you were signing up for when you decided to go and study music? Or did it kind of shock you a little bit? To be honest, I did not know what I was signing up for. <laughs> yeah. So, so initially when you decided to go, what was your idea of music school or studying music? I didn't expect for it to balance, I mean, for it to depend so much on your own discipline. Mm. I mean, I knew that you had to practice yourself, but how much you have to practice yourself and yeah, the theory part I was, wasn't so good at too. Ah, so the, the more kind of academic stuff. Yeah, not really the academic stuff. 
it's the more like the musicianship, like oral training or like rhythm awareness or intonation. Ah, right. Okay. Basics. Okay. Okay. Up to then, yeah. Up to then, I was like just playing, like learning how to press notes and make sound. <laughs> okay, understand, understand. So yeah. the the kind of more um holistic approach to music making. Yeah. Right. Okay. And then, did any point in time when you were studying at a YS- at YST did you feel like oh no maybe I've made like the wrong decision, or you were kind of. It was different, but you were kind of enjoying it anyway. Um, many times I did question like why I did music, why I chose to pursue violin professionally, mm. because I did feel sometimes that um, my technical level wasn't as high as my friends. Right. Yeah, but that didn't resolve until I came to Netherlands, unfortunately. But I think you know this idea of being in constant sort of critique mode is mm-hmm. it almost becomes second nature to us as yeah. uh, conservatory students, right? The the focus yeah. on, because we want to improve, we want to become better, this focus on what we can't do is constantly bugging us. Yeah. And it's so connected to our life, like as our passion, like for other professions, I, I feel that they can disconnect easier, but for music, it's so close. Yeah. That it affects everything. Correct. And it's the, yeah. the constant sort of connection and interaction that you, you need to have with the instrument. Basically, yeah. till the day we decide to put the instrument in a box and never touch it again. Yeah. <laughs> right? So, yeah. It's or a, if we go into a box. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, you know, it's a kind of a lifelong um, dedication yeah. kind of thing. Right? So, yeah. Okay, now let's talk about um, the part where you got into uh, Baroque violin and period performance. So you mentioned that you saw your teacher from The Hague play in mm-hmm. Singapore. Yeah. And then you got interested in Baroque violin. And did you know that you were going to do also a bachelor's in The Hague? Or did you just wanted to go and learn Baroque violin but not take on like a full degree course based on Baroque violin? Uh, I didn't know that I was going to do a bachelor, but yeah, I definitely wanted to go and have some lessons with him. Mm. And after like the first year, yeah. he suddenly said, okay, now you can audition for the bachelor. And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. So, so, yeah. And the decision to go to the Netherlands was solely based on like wanting to get into Baroque music. Of course, you were yeah. doing your master's at the same time, but mm-hmm. um, did, I mean, you could do a master's anywhere, right? Not just yeah. in the Netherlands. Was, mm-hmm. was that mostly the reason that made you choose the school? Yes, definitely. Before that, I was thinking of going to Europe, but I was not sure where in Europe I could go to. But after knowing that real teachers in the Hague, I was I that was my dream school, definitely the Hague. Mm, okay. Yeah. And right now, would you say uh, that you are doing more work, or oh, not not right now, but over the last couple of years, would you say that you're doing more work on the modern instrument or the period instrument? Definitely, the modern instrument went on a pause. Okay. For the first two years of my barat violin. Pl- playing I did modern violin as well but it it was a bit it conflicted with my training on baroque violin so I stopped playing it for a bit mm. yeah. yeah and I think what you said here brings us very nicely to the next topic which is the transition between modern violin and baroque violin and like you mentioned that you took a pause for mm-hmm. for the modern violin I think yeah. do you think that that was absolutely essential for you yes. to completely kind of embrace the the technique and the playing styles of the Baroque violin? Yes, because the, there are many things that are opposites in Baroque and modern violin. For example, the mezza di voce or the swells on the bow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one thing. And also on uh, Baroque violin, I do a chin-off method. Not everyone does that, but I don't put my chin... I don't use my chin to hold the violin down onto my shoulder. Okay. So to shift will be, I have to use a different technique. I see. 
And also, I think that the many things that are not ideal in the modern violin, but are ideal in the baroque violin. Hmm. Okay. And so, what I'm really interested is during, say, like the first two years. Yeah. It must be extremely, sometimes frustrating, and um, when when you're practicing. Yeah. Isn't it because the the demands of the when when you're doing your uh, master's degree, you, obviously mm-hmm. you ha- you still had to practice on the modern violin. You still had assessment on the modern violin. Yeah. And then you, at the same time, you were also working on the baroque violin. How did you cope with this kind of these two instruments of coexisting together? Mm, it was a bit like trying to code switch between Singlish and modern English. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So I had to be very aware of what I was doing at all times. Like, um, if I'm playing bar violin, uh, I, I want to have this sound. I want to have this ideal. I want to express this on the bar violin and on the modern violin. This is what is expected, and I like this sound better or stuff. But mm-hmm. the problem was that because I just started bar violin, I didn't know what I wanted. Mm. Like, like there were ideals, but I was always constantly uh, discovering more and more ideals in my lessons. Then when I'm practicing, I'm like. Um. <laughs> yeah, is that right or is that wrong? Is that yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm, okay, so there was a lot of this kind of gray areas, lah. I guess like questioning yeah. whether what you're doing was true or not in a way. Yeah, okay. because historical violin playing is trying to imit- trying to play the way they might have played in the past. That means I cannot, to some extent, I cannot use my stylistic preferences that I have now. I have to abandon them. To some extent, yeah, yeah, and I think that is such a difficult task to kind of reimagine the sounds of hundreds of years ago. Yeah, yeah, I think that is the the most difficult part about period performance, in a way. I, I mean, of course, you have the technical challenges as well, but yeah, yeah, the kind of reimagination of what four hundred years ago, it's yeah, <laughs> for me, extremely difficult. Yeah, yeah. So how how much of like kind of reimagining like like you said right you have to play in a way that is like how it was um back in the day how much mm-hmm. of it is down to like research and understanding the history and how much of it is down to like technique i think in the end um half half so to use the treatises and books and pictures as guidelines but then at the end is really up to the other half is my own taste. Mm. Like, do I think that what I'm doing is convincing enough to me and therefore will it be convincing to my audience? Mm. And does it have to be beautiful or does it have to, uh, like, express something that I want to express or what do I want to do with the goals of the performance? Interesting. Because the treatises and in text, you cannot describe music completely. Mm. And... The scores, they don't have as much detail as the modern scores because they the musicians were expected to know already what was the style of that period because they were born in that music environment so they were, grew up hearing that. Yeah. 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 I remember like looking at some copies of this kind of Urtex Baroque uh, scores. It's yeah. basically <laughs> just blank. It's, it's, yeah. Yeah, they're just notes and then that's it. Mm-hmm. So we have to wait for the, we have to use our own taste in that way to ask ourselves what the music is trying to express and how would we express it. Mm. And then use the treatises as a guideline to express that. And was this uncomfortable for you? Changing from modern violin to, or modern uh, pieces, which are a lot more prescriptive in the instructions on say like dynamics and articulation, moving to Baroque, which is something that just kind of clean and then so much of it is down to you making that decision Mm. to be honest uh, I use my teacher and I use my friends around as a as a like a lot of I use them as guidance a Mm. lot of guidance so it was quite difficult to decide on myself but then to watch other people perform and to understand their performance they helped a lot I see okay yeah, so I think that's always a good starting point, right? Having like a good teacher that's able to sort of guide you and then eventually the more experience you get and the more music you play, then you can start yeah. to 
develop your own taste and your own kind of voice or how you want to express the music. Yeah. Mm. Just copy then yeah. try out. Yeah. And then develop your own yeah. version out of that that previous version. Yeah. yeah. Cool. So now I've seen some of your recent videos. <laughs> uh, what, what, I don't know if they were was it just kind of for fun or were they for or were they for an assessment or something where you played different instruments? Yeah, that was uh, for my final exam. Mm. Yeah, and I think what what I saw in the video is, of course, uh, you mentioned previously that you were also uh, minoring in this instrument called the violone. Is that yeah right? Um, and then you were also playing the harpsichord as well. Trying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not playing. Of course, before you posted the video, I found out from Dawn as well that you had to do an assessment and you had to um, play and realize some figured bass. Mm-hmm. How, how important is it uh, to you uh, for someone that is playing a period instrument to have this kind of very holistic uh, approach to say, realizing figured bass, a violone is a basso instrument, I guess, mm-hmm. right? Uh, to be able to play a basso part and then to be able to play like a melodic part on the violin. Mm-hmm. Um, in bara, violin is super important. Like uh, in my classes, with my, my violin classes with my teacher, every time I play the piece with a bass line, my teacher will play the bass line at the same time. Mm. So, so that I will always have the real sense of the relationship between the two lines. Yeah. To realize the chord, that's uh, also quite important, but not as important as knowing exactly what the bass line is playing. Mm. Because the intervals between the lines and how the lines go together or depart, the colorful intervals can express the effect or the emotions a lot in the piece and if i don't use those intervals then i'm missing something mm. a flavor okay so even now i when i practice a piece i sometimes record myself on the violin playing the bass line and then try to play the top line on top ah okay so you create your own kind of uh basso part yeah and then you play along with that yeah, and also to learn to understand like how I would like my continual players to play the bass line like to complement my part or to contrast with my part. That is important to know. Mm. I, I was just about to ask you, who is supposed to lead? Is mm. it the, the continual line that is supposed to be um, giving the direction or is it the melodic line that is supposed to be giving the, the, the direction of the music? Um... I would say a melodic line. Mm. If it was, unless it was stated specifically that it was like, uh, like in the Bach sonatas there for violin, there's two kinds. One is Bach sonata with continuo and the other one is Bach sonata with obbligato harpsichord. Mm. That means it's more of an equal. Or with obbligato harpsichord means it's like a duet. I see. But with continuo, it's more of a supporting line. Mm. Yeah. But sometimes the the continuo, depending on the what they are playing, would lead more than the melodic line. I see. Okay. It depends. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and of course, uh, I just want to kind of uh, backtrack and kind of explain, if you are not very familiar with Baroque terms, what we are talking about. Um, <laughs> yeah. So let's start with um, basso continuo. Mm-hmm. Right? So this is... Uh, Maybe I should let you do it instead of me. Just so that I don't uh. embarrass myself. <laughs> yeah. So uh, can, can you talk us through this, uh, a few things that we spoke about, which is uh, basso continuo and what is realizing figured bass? Okay. Um, basso continuo is the, the bass line of any music that usually comes as a single line, not with chords written out. But uh, this bass line will be played by uh, a few um, continual instruments, which includes the harpsichord, the cello, or violone, or gamba, or even a lute or theobo. Mm. And the, this, this bass line sometimes has numbers written on top of it. And these numbers would instruct the, um, the continual player, especially the harpsichordist and the lute players, 
about what chords to play yeah. on, on top of that note. Mm. So um, if you're looking at a score, this means that if you are playing, say, for example, the harpsichord in a Baroque ensemble, and if you are reading the... Uh, doesn't matter what you read, but when you're reading the music, you basically just only have a bass note and then a number or two numbers on top of it, right? Yeah. So there's no... Um, the chords are not written out for you, but the no. bass notes is written out for you. And therefore, yeah. the term realize is being used because you have to decipher the number and prescribe mm-hmm. the chords accordingly or play the yeah. chords accordingly. And the way you play the chords, um, like how you... what how many doublings or what in what position they are or how they um, move in the chords would de- depend on the style you're playing, whether it's Italian, early Italian, French or German mm. style. Okay. Yeah. So uh, from what you're saying, then th- does the numbering system sort of uh, change and mean different things when it comes to different countries' uh, music? Uh, I think in German music, they will put more numbers. Okay. In f- French music, uh, there'll be some numbers, but less. But mm. um, then it's more about the dance. Okay, I see. Okay, no, interesting. And we'll get to that sort of different uh, nationalistic styles a little bit cool. later. Yeah. <laughs> so now um, the next question is the common misconception for by modern instrumentalists our performers mm-hmm. when they are performing Baroque music and we are not we are talking about playing this on modern instrument now mm. okay so I okay let's take me for example right so I play the euphonium <laughs> something that is yeah. invented really really late so I missed out on a big part of uh, music history and repertoire mm-hmm. so sometimes um, to uh, pretend to be a little bit more cultured than I am I play and some mm-hmm. Baroque transcriptions as well. And cool. yeah. <laughs> uh, you say it's cool now until you hear yes. it, then you'll be like, hmm, yeah, interesting. No, I heard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I think um, it, it's quite interesting. I think a lot of our approach, or not our, my approach when it comes to performing Baroque music is mm-hmm. uh, probably very contradicting to the original way that it's supposed to sound. What is your take on that? And do you think that when we play on different instruments or modern instruments that some of these um, treatments and misconceptions can kind of go out of the window? Or what What do you think are the common misconceptions? Mm, I think that the most common misconception is that the Baroque historical players know what we are doing. (laughs) We actually don't know what we are doing. (laughs) There's no correct way of doing it. For example, I heard you um, play the Bach Chorale with the um, uh, Cole. Oh, yes. Yes. And that was super cool because I felt that you brought new meaning. And that's, I think the important thing about Baroque music is is the meaning, the effect, or what you want to communicate behind the music. Mm. Like, I think if you can confl- communicate something effectively, if like the ideas of Baroque music is to make the audience feel what you're feeling. Yeah. Like that was written in a treatise by Quantz to, to make the audience cry or to make them laugh while you're playing. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So if you can do that, no matter what style, if you're trying to do historical or modern, I think then then it's good. Mm, okay. That means the music is convincing and it speaks to someone and it affects someone. Nice, nice. And I think this is a very, um, I think I, I heard this um, line or this section of the treatise from uh, my first few music history lessons at NAFA. Cool. Yeah. Nice. But yeah, it's kind of being chucked to the back of my brain. Yeah. <laughs> so do you think that there is this kind of um, excessive discussion uh, about whether or not to use vibrato in Baroque music? Yeah, because uh, I do use <laughs> uh, vibrato in Baroque music, but as long as we are aware of 
as long as it's not automatic and you are aware of the what you're trying to do with it, mm. then it's fine. Yeah. I saw a meme recently about social distancing. <laughs> I don't know if you saw that, right? <laughs> yes, I did. Yeah. So to, to keep people away at, at the end, yeah, you yeah. just start to talk about um, vibrato in Baroque music and then people just automatically <laughs> walks off. <laughs> Yeah, I find Social that. Distancing. Yeah, exactly. I find that quite, quite, uh, quite funny and quite interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So I think what is your, your take on um, vibrato then when you're using it? What is the primary purpose of it? Vibrato um, would be to make the sound more beautiful, mm. but not all the time. The sound can be like even beauty has to be used effectively. It can't be beautiful all the time. Mm. Then, then there's no like if there's some note that I want to be even more beautiful, then I can use the vibrato on it, but not all the time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then, um, when it comes to say building up intensity instead of just beautifying the sound, does that does it work along with, for example, like the bass line when it's going to something that's a little bit more interesting or a little bit more intense? Do we? Yeah. Do you also like use a a bit of vibrato to kind of highlight that as well? Yeah. Like, um, for example, if there's a note that is a bit more dissonant, it depends on the kind of dissonant. Do I want it to be a sharp dissonance? Then I'll use more articulation. Mm. Or do I want it to be a like a warm, strange dissonance? Then I'll use a bit of vibrato. I see. But if I choose carefully which note to use vibrato on, then it will stand out. And if the note, if I want that note to stand out, then um, it's a good thing. Mm, okay, yeah. So then next thing is uh, dynamics, right? So of yeah. course, from um, what, what I learned uh, earlier in my music education is that when you're talking about Baroque and dynamic, uh, it, is, it basically is um, mostly terrace dynamic. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> Okay, so uh, of course, uh, terrace dynamic means that the dynamics are sort of, um, you, you don't do a lot of diminuendo and crescendos, it's just like loud, and then maybe the second phrase is a little bit quieter, and you contrast it mm-hmm. a little bit more by steps, rather than by um, gradually easing it off to the next dynamic. Mm-hmm. Um, thoughts? Um, I think terrace dynamics is more... A modern concept mm. um, because for example in a harpsichord you don't have dynamics to be honest yeah. there are there's no pedals there's the only way you can have make it louder is to play more notes so mm. on the violin for I think one of the lessons I learned was that dynamics is not just the volume the difference in volume but it's more of the difference in color because mm. If, if I want a piano, what do I mean? Do I want it to be a soft sound or do I want it to be a light, wispy sound? Or if I want it to be loud, does it have to be piercing or does it like a trumpet or like surrounding your body like, uh, like a huge sound? Yeah, like a huge resonant yeah. kind, kind of yeah. sound. Or, yeah. So it's more about the colors than the volume. Okay. Mm. And... Because like uh, on the baroque violin and on some wind instruments, if you play too loud, the intonation changes. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So not so much dynamic contrast can be. So it's how to trick the audience into thinking we are playing louder. Mm, okay, okay. So creating yeah. it, uh, creating a, a different kind of sound to kind of make a, make a feeling of a different dynamic, basically. Yeah, mm. yeah I think this is really interesting um, because I think so many like theoretically part of the uh, performance practice of early music people just say that oh yeah we have to do like MF and then the next phrase must be like piano and <laughs> yeah that kind of stuff right because I, I find that actually quite challenging mm-hmm. because I, I think like the music is not very organic when you play it like that yeah, it doesn't like, make sense. Yeah, <laughs> like you're, you're, you're climbing a, a flight of stairs or something like that. Like you, you go up and then you come down, you go up. Yeah, it just yeah, yeah. felt a little bit strange. But yeah, nice mm-hmm. to hear um, your thoughts on that. And then now the last thing, last technical thing about um, playing Baroque music is obviously the ornaments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and 
how freestyle should we go with the ornaments? And is it really like the first time round we play it as it is, the second time round then we just kind of, we can go crazy with the ornaments. What are your thoughts on that? It really depends on the national style you're playing. Okay. Um, for example, in German music, the ornaments are mostly written out. So you shouldn't add more to it because it's already so complex and so detailed. Mm. In yeah, um, in Italian music, early Italian like Bieber, which is no Bieber is German. Sorry, in uh, no, Bieber early is Italian Karen, music, no? <laughs> no, not <laughs> Justin Bieber, please. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, in Italian music, there are. Uh, places where they just put a very, very simple, unadorned melody and then you're supposed to go crazy on it. Mm. Like, just change it completely. Okay. And in French music, um, not so much, but you are expected to add some small ornaments like trills or appoggiaturas here and there to make it more elegant. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So, But at the end of the day, all the ornaments are not there to on to be just the ornament like to be the main picture but i think it's to show the effect or the emotions so if the ornaments can show not and not distract from the emotions then it's a good thing mm. ah, that, that's interesting yeah i think uh, same thing maybe not for everyone but for me back going back to my earlier music education ornaments with baroque music seems to be like it always a thing right <laughs> to to make it like more authentic then let's focus on yeah whether we do a turn here or not whether we do a trail here or not and mm-hmm. yeah all, all that kind of stuff but i think with what you've said so far i think the the intentions of the music trumps everything yeah. and and informs uh, all these kind of like technical um things that you do when it comes to vibrato yeah. dynamics and ornaments so everything has to serve the bigger picture, isn't it? Yeah. For example, if you see like a painting, a French painting, the first thing you the first thing you don't see is the ornaments. Um, maybe you do, but the first thing I see is the emotion in the faces and then the ornaments come in Yeah. later. Or if you see a building like the Versailles, first mm. you're impressed by the majesty of it. Mm. Then you look closer and then you see the ornaments. So the ornaments play a part, but mm. they're not the main thing. Yeah, definitely. I think, yeah, what do you say? It's it's a perfect analogy. I think you yeah yeah you you look at the the bigger picture first, and then you start to discover all these little details that can be really yeah. really cool. Yeah. yeah, nice. Unfortunately, when we first start playing music, then we see the ornaments, and then we're like, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> so for the musician, it can be the main thing, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> Especially, I think when we are not very comfortable with music of that era and that yeah. kind of language, then that then be takes away from a lot of the, the music. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But it, it should be like speaking English. Like we don't say, eat your chicken rice la. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, or we do. So yeah, <laughs> sure. Or if, we, if we do, yeah. then it has to have a purpose. Like Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. like it's supposed to be funny, right? <laughs> yeah. Cool. And I think you've, you've already started to um, also bring us into... Um, the next question, which is the different kind of nationalistic styles. So, of yeah. course, you've mentioned uh, a little bit about the German, Italian, and the French. Um, mm-hmm. What are your thoughts about, is English Baroque a thing? Um, I'm, Itali- uh, English Baroque is not so much a thing because they liked to import musicians from Italian and German. Like Handel was German. Mm and Taliman is Italian, and then they decided to go to England because there was more money. I see. Less culture, but more money, right? (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) Yeah. Um, It's okay. I lived there for four years. So it gives me a a little bit of uh, (laughs) a liberty to say that. But of course, that that was like 400 years ago, right? So what what about, um, is Purcell then a little bit earlier than Baroque? Uh, he's uh he's baroque, right? Do you play a lot of his music or not so much? I would yeah. Sometimes I do play his music. I think he's closer to Italian style. Mm, okay, sure. 
Nice. So, okay. So then in, in this case, we'll just focus on these uh, three main countries. Yeah. Right. And what are the the trademarks of these um, respective schools of Baroque music? And what are they known for? Um, German music is very serious music. Like they love their contrapuntal movement and um, cannons and fugues, that kind of thing. Mm. Whereas um, if you're talking about high baroque yeah. music and then uh, Italian music, um, high baroque is more uh, on the violin at least. They like a lot of showy things mm. like like fast things and a lot of ornaments and how you ornament your music. Like Vivaldi and stuff. Yeah. That would put you apart from the rest. Okay. And then uh, in French music, these are very big generalizations, by the way. Yeah. Uh, in French music, the, it was very influenced by a king god called Louis XIV. Um, and he loved the dances. So a lot of French music is based on the dance, like the saraband or the alaman and the courant. Mm, okay. And the G. I see. Yeah. Nice. When you're preparing works from different countries, how deep do you dive into all this kind of uh, context of the past to inform the way you play? For French music, a lot. Because you definitely need to know the um, the way, the dance and the characteristics of it. Yeah. To know like the tempo or the the effect of the dance mm. well. For German music, actually most of it is written on the score, so it's a bit easier. Okay. Yeah. For the French music, the, the ornaments you have to really find out from the treatises. Okay. And because not all of them use the same kind of notation for the ornaments. And for Italian music, Corelli wrote out some of his crazy ornaments. Then if I play those ornaments and then I try out to write my own, then it's more helpful. I see. Yeah. And also for French music, I heard that if you can speak French, it helps a lot. Because then you know how to articulate the notes better. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. How so? Do you mind just kind of explaining it a little bit to me? Um, like there are many words where they don't pronounce all the vowels and yeah, stuff. The back end of I'm, it, especially. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like Italian music is a bit easier. To me, French music is the hardest, but Italian music is the easiest and also the easiest to pronounce the language because mm. it's quite um, straightforward. Yeah, you speak every syllable, right? For Italian. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's uh, easy to know what to articulate, how to articulate. But in French music, they have a lot of ornaments. Like if you look at the score, you, it, then the ornaments become the main thing for me at first because mm. it's just full of it, like tiny, small, little ornaments. Then, But if I know how to play the ornaments while seeing the big picture... Mm. Like seeing the French word and not pronouncing all of it. Okay. Then it helps a lot. I see. Yeah. Mm, that, that's interesting. Yeah. But uh, I'm still discovering that too. Mm, okay. Okay. And so now it, let's take the, the French dance styles, right? So like you said, the, those multiple uh, different movements. Yeah. These are, these are also movements say, that you can find in like the Bach Shallow Suite as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And... The structure of the dance, me- meaning whether it's, it's in four, it's in three, and where the strong beats are, are mm-hmm. the same in both countries. Yeah. And But would you say that the, the approach is quite different when you perform, say, these two types of um, uh, the same kind of movements, but from different countries? I think the characteristics are more or less the same, okay. as you said. Right. Um, I guess Bach's stuff are definitely more technically demanding. Mm. So there's you have to get past that hurdle first before you can start thinking about really expressing the dance well. Yeah. Then, But for French music, I find when I play like Couperin's music, mm. that um, the music's simple, but if the player can... Like there are a lot of nuances that you can put into the music, right? By of your from from yourself, and then that makes the music special. Mm. 
Whereas Bach's music is special already from because he, there are so many notes and so many interesting harmonies. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Okay. And then now, then we, we go to, if we are talking about Italian Baroque, is it mostly um, more kind of virtuosic in a sense? Would you say that in terms of like the, the idea of kind of showing off as a performer mm-hmm. is more uh, prevalent in Italian Baroque than in German Baroque? Uh, sometimes, yes. Okay. To show in uh, in Italian Baroque, you have to play in a way that doesn't f- feel difficult for the audience. Mm. Like it's so natural for you that it just comes. <laughs> okay. I see. Like the ornaments uh, have to be really, it can be really fast, but it has to be really light and not naughty. Okay. So extremely kind of like well embedded into the music. Yeah. Okay. Like very natural sounding. Mm. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, when you, when you say all these things, I, I think maybe like euphonium players just shouldn't play Baroque music anymore. No, it <laughs> it's just, uh, it's just a challenge for you. Yeah. Yeah. Huge challenge. <laughs> I mean, yeah, so many things, right? Phrasing, we need to breathe and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, but it's closer for you because on the I was telling Don that like articulation for us is hard because we have to articulate using our hands, then a bow head and <laughs> I don't know what. But mm. for you, you can use your lips like how you articulate when you speak. Uh, yeah. Or your breath. Or... Mm. So yeah. in a way, it's closer. Yeah, it's the, it, I think it's also coming to terms with that with the language like, that is um, that can be a bit, little bit tricky. Like you said, mm. I, I, even before talking to you, there is so much kind of uh, misconception already mm-hmm. in terms of the dynamics, in terms of uh, in terms of the ornaments and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's all really cool and it's it's great. So now, these three German, Italian, French, Baroque. Okay, so obviously we know the big composers and uh, the very popular ones. Do you have mm-hmm. any recommendations for? Um, Disrespective schools of Baroque that are composers that are not as popular? Um, for French Baroque, I would recommend Marine Marais. I ah, can't pronounce okay. it properly, but yeah. um, especially on his Gamba music, mm. it's amazing. Yeah. For Italian music, um, like Castello, Fras- Frescobaldi, these are early Italian music. Then, um, uh, German? German would be Bieber. Ah, okay. Not just in <laughs> yeah. Um, there and there are also like many composers like from Austria or um, other smaller countries that are are or even anonymous composers that are quite cool to listen to. Mm. And this sort of anonymous music, how how do you come across them then? Uh, sometimes through recordings, like some artists like to play the. Anonymous stuff. Ah, okay. Yeah, okay. or if not, I go online. There are a few um, websites where they digitized all their collections. Mm. And then you just find a facsimile, facsimile yeah. and then uh, you try to play it out. I see. Okay. Yeah. Is there a reason why it's anonymous? Um, sometimes they lost the cover page and then there's no more composer. Ah, okay, okay. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. I see. So m- not because the composers don't want to be known, but it's more of like it was just lost during uh, over time, la. Yeah, probably it's more often lost over time. I see. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting that you also uh, mentioned uh, Marie Marai, because <laughs> there is a very popular arrangement of his La Folia. Mm-hmm. Ah. Yeah, for um, euphonium. For euphonium oh. or saxhorn, so oh, nice. yeah, it's it's actually that arrangement is very popular in uh, Paris. Cool. In in the conservatory, it's one of their like standard repertoire. Oh. Like first year students will learn that piece. Uh, yeah. Nice. And it has like what maybe not all the variations, but close mm-hmm. to all the variations, maybe about mm-hmm. eighteen or something like that. Um, yeah. So I've got oh. the yeah I've got that copy. On my shelf somewhere, yeah, cool. so, yeah, yeah. Maybe it's time to to take it out, yeah, and cool. yeah, play it 
privately. <laughs> just, no, just try. Yeah. Cool. Uh, thank you so much. I think uh, this is a good time for us to uh, wrap up the interview. And thank you so much for coming on uh, to speak to me and being uh, honest and open to sharing career developments as well as explaining Baroque music to me and everyone else that's listening. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for asking me here and I hope it was helpful. Yeah, definitely. And I hope you enjoy yourself. I think that's kind of more important. Uh, yeah, I definitely did. Yeah. A lot. And yeah, I, I wish you have a very like I said, seamless uh, integration back into the Singapore music scene, which I'm sure will happen. And yeah. Thank you. With that, I think we will sign off on this episode of You Play A What. You have been listening to You Play A What, hosted by Vincent Tan. If you enjoyed this episode, please hit the subscribe button so that you'll be notified when a new episode is posted. Rate and review the podcast and share it with your friends if you feel so inclined. The theme music for the podcast is entitled Midnight Affairs and is composed by Algirdas Matonis and recorded by Vincent Tan. Thank you so much for listening to You Play or What? Until next time.